John Dean Cooper. Many of you may not recognize that name. And is best known to his friends as Jeff Cooper. Was a Marine Lieutenant Colonel who served in both World War II and the Korean War. Jeff Cooper was recognized as the father of what is commonly known as the modern technique of handgun shooting and one of the 20th century's foremost international experts on the use and history of small arms. He began teaching shotgun and rifle classes and to law enforcement personnel and military personnel as well as civilians and did on-site training for individuals and groups from around the world. According to Cooper, the most important means of surviving a lethal confrontation is neither the weapon nor the martial skills. The primary tool is the combat mindset. In his book, Principles of Personal Defense, in the chapter on awareness, Cooper presents an adaptation of the Marine Corps system to differentiate states of awareness, states of mental readiness. The color code, as originally introduced by Jeff Cooper, had nothing to do with tactical situations or alertness levels, but rather with one's state of mind for combat readiness. This system, by the way, is also used by Navy SEALs. Here's the color code system as developed by Cooper. White, that is unaware and unprepared. If attacked in condition white, the only thing that may save you is the inadequacy or ineptitude of your attacker. When confronted by something nasty, your reaction will probably be, if you're in state color white, oh my goodness, this can't be happening to me. Yellow. That's the state of relaxed alert. No specific threat situation. Your mind is that today could be the day that I may have to defend myself. You're simply aware that the world is a potentially unfriendly place and that you are prepared to defend yourself if necessary. In yellow, you are taking in the surrounding information around you in a relaxed but alert manner. Orange. Orange is specific alert. Something is not quite right and has your attention. Your radar has picked up a specific alert. Your mindset shifts to focusing on the specific target which has caused the escalation in alert status. In condition orange, you set a mental trigger. If that person does X, I will need to stop them. And the last color is condition red. Condition red is fight. If your mental trigger established back in condition orange has been tripped, if X happens, I will act. Okay, now I want to suggest to you this morning that there is a spiritual parallel to each of these stages of combat readiness. Now let me ask you a question. Which color would you say describes your level of readiness? Spiritually. Which color? If you're in white, you are unprepared and unready to take action. If you are attacked in white spiritually, you will probably fall, fall flat on your face unless your adversary is totally 
inept. And as we've seen throughout this series, your spiritual adversary and mine is not inept. Is that right? A Christian in this condition is easy prey for Satan. Are you in yellow? You've brought yourself to the understanding that your life may be in danger and that you may have to do something about it. As a believer, at this level, you may be able to sense trouble coming. But the question is, are you ready to confront it? Are you prepared and equipped? If your state of readiness is orange, you have determined upon a specific adversary and are prepared to take action. At this stage, you have put on the full armor of God. If your state is red, however, you are in lethal mode. Lethal mode spiritually. As in condition orange, by faith you are fully armed, submitted to God, standing firm and prepared to resist. The difference between red and orange in this case is experience. A battle-seasoned Christian knows quickly what to do because of his experience and familiarity with Scripture and how to strike. He wields the sword of the Spirit accurately, effectively, and lethally. And the devil and his hosts, the Scripture says, will flee. Amen? So at what level of spiritual readiness are you right now? What would you say? Because wherever we are as followers of Jesus Christ, wherever we happen to be, at work, in the mall, on a business trip, even among fellow believers like we are here this morning, we need to know Satan's methods and be prepared to resist him. That's what we've been talking about for the last seven weeks. And last time we were together, I suggested to you that identifying the truth about your adversary gives you confidence to overcome your adversary. My goal was to brief you on four vital pieces of information about your enemy that can literally save your life as you engage him, and I was only able to get through one. Remember that? I spent a lot of time on the fact that our enemy is a deceitful adversary. Satan's hosts are liars. He seeks to delude you in any way possible, and he will even use religious trappings to do it. John chapter 8, in verse 44, we looked at John chapter 8 last week. If you remember, that was the confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, and Jesus basically told them that they were of their father, the devil. The most highly respected religious leaders of the day, Jesus said they were demonic, basically. John 8, verse 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If this text shows us anything about our adversary, it's that Satan wants to make his children appear as much like God as it is possible for them to be without their ever putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you get that? 
Jesus pointed out that he, meaning Christ, is the truth. God's word is the truth. And it is only the truth that will make people free. Amen? And if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Truly free. Our adversary is a deceptive enemy. He doesn't want us to be free. He wants us to be enslaved to him. And he will lure us into that delusion any way that he can. And I told you last week, he deceives us in a number of ways. He deceives us through witchcraft and false spirituality as an imitator and a counterfeit of true spirituality. He deceives us through false teachers and prophets. And he deceives us through cultural relativism. This enemy of ours wants to break down our resolve to stand apart from sin. And so we begin to unwittingly accept the cultural norms of the day, even though they are completely contrary to biblical truth. Because we're not alert to the deception. The mental state of readiness is not there. And the antidote to all this is to focus on the truth of Scripture and to make it real in our daily lives. Because if our adversary is out to control our minds, then we must counter that by keeping ourselves in the mind of Christ. Amen? Colossians 3. J. Dwight Pentecost said, For as soon as a man forsakes the mind of Christ, he is liable to demonic deception. And Satan is a extremely deceptive adversary. But he's overcome every time by the truth of Christ. So are you alert to the dangers of your adversary? He's deceitful. But as I said last week, we have the means to overcome him through the sacrifice and the sustenance of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Remember in the book of Revelation, as I closed last week, I pointed this out. In Revelation 12, verse 11, it describes this war in heaven between the angels and Satan's downfall to the earth, and it tells how the saints overcame the adversary. You remember how they overcame him? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Identifying these truths about our adversary gives us confidence to overcome him. Second thing now, moving into new territory here. He is a destructive enemy. A destructive enemy. Revelation chapter 9, verse 11, identifies the character of our adversary through the names that are given to him. Two names are mentioned in that verse, Abaddon and Apollyon. Both of those names mean destroyer. Destroyer. One's Greek, one's Hebrew. Jesus identified this aspect of the enemy's character in John chapter 10, verse 10, when he said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they might have life and have it, how? Abundantly. Abundantly. Now, historically, there are two major avenues through which Satan attacks believers. First of all, he assaults individuals. He assaults individuals, the individual members of the body of Christ. And he employs a variety of means to do this. He does it by hindering our work. 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, verse 18 says that Satan hindered Paul from coming to the Thessalonians. 
He literally says that Satan hindered him. He hinders us through temptation. Now, we remember when we began this series, that was the first thing that we looked at, right? How Satan tempted Christ in the desert. And I think the timing for the conclusion of this message today is apropos because I began this series with an exposition on how the devil strategically and seductively accosted Jesus in the desert with temptation after temptation after temptation at the beginning of his public ministry and how Jesus thwarted each of those temptations. And remember how he thwarted them? How? With the word. It is written, right? It is written. Now, at the end of the passage in Luke chapter 4, in verse 13, Luke chapter 4, verse 13, that passage on Jesus' temptation, it says that when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Remember? Remember what I said about when I thought that opportune time was? I believe that the opportune time came at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, four days after he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey, on Palm Sunday, on the same night Jesus would share the Last Supper with his beloved disciples. That was the opportune time. On Thursday evening, the night he was betrayed, Jesus entered into the greatest spiritual and emotional battle of his earthly human life. Luke writes, and I'd like you to look at this in Luke 22. Luke chapter 22 and verse 3. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began, now mark this in your Bibles, he began seeking a good opportunity to betray him apart from the crowd. Who's behind all this? Was it Judas? It was Satan who entered into Judas, right? Interestingly enough, Mark chapter 14 and verse 11 uses the same exact terminology that Luke used back in chapter 4 when he said the devil departed from him and he waited until an opportune time. In Mark chapter 14 and verse 11, which is a parallel passage to the one I just read, it says, they were glad when they heard this, meaning Judas would betray him, and promised to give him money, and he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. It's here on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed so intently that his sweat became as drops of blood, the scripture says, that Jesus won the victory over the devil's last temptation to bypass the cup of suffering and willingly submit himself to his Father's will, muting the lion's roar. Amen? That was a great victory that was won. 
Satan assaults individuals by hindering their work, by temptation, by accusation. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10 says that, calls Satan the accuser of the brethren who accuses them night and day. And then he assaults individuals by out and out oppression and persecution. I was reading in World Magazine this week. There's an article in there. It says, last month, and I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name exactly, but I'll give it a shot. Last month, Shabbat's Bati attended the National Prayer Breakfast in Washington, D.C., met Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and other dignitaries, then continued on to Ottawa, to London, and to Brussels. He was trying to raise the public consciousness about rising extremism in Pakistan. What Bati, 42, did not accomplish in life, many hope he may help to accomplish in death as photos of his bullet-ridden, blood-soaked black sedan headline newspapers around the world after his March 2nd assassination. As Pakistan's minister of minorities, the Catholic Bati was the only Christian member of Pakistan's cabinet and the leading member of the ruling Pakistan People's Party. He was killed by at least four gunmen who surrounded his vehicle in the afternoon as he drove away from his mother's home. It was a harsh blow, the article says, to Pakistan's Christian community, which makes up less than, get this, 3%. 3% of the population in the increasingly milit militant Islamic country of 166 million people. 3% are Christian. A pastor in Pakistan, not identified for security reasons, called Bati's death another dark day for Pakistan. Al-Qaeda and Taliban affiliates claimed responsibility for his murder and police found alongside his body at least one note produced by Osama bin Laden's terrorist network. This is what it said, among other things. This is the fitting end of the accused and accursed one which would serve as an example to others and now, with the blessing and aid of Allah, we'll send all of you one by one to hell, unquote. Now, this man was aware of the threats against him. And he made a video with a journalist seven, several months ago where he spoke about them. And this is what he said. He said, these Taliban threaten me, but I want to share that I believe in Jesus Christ who has given his own life for us. I know what is the meaning of cross, and I am following the cross. A lion roared. Satan surely wants to intimidate us. He wants to intimidate us and cripple us with fear, and so he roars loudly, chillingly, Gary Richmond, a former zookeeper and veterinarian at the Los Angeles Zoo, an author of the book All God's Creatures, wrote a little something about lions, and he, he wrote about a lion's roar. I'd like to share a little bit of that with you. Because I think it's apropos, talking about Satan roaring like a lion. What does that mean? 
because it comes up in Scripture so many times. We should know something about it. He says a lion's roar may be heard over a distance of nearly five miles. The sound of the roar registers somewhere between one and three kilohertz. The deepest bass gospel singer never dreamed of singing that loud without blowing every vocal cord in his larynx. The roar is so loud and so low that if a lion were to roar near you, it would literally vibrate through your entire body. So he says, we know that its roar is loud and powerful, but what does it mean and what does it have to do with Satan, our adversary? Well, every reason for a lion to roar relates in some way to Satan's methodology, he says. Lions do most of their roaring at night under the cover of darkness. Darkness is where Satan does his best work. That's right, huh? Do you know that 3 o'clock in the morning is generally referred to as the soul's midnight? Because most people die in hospitals at about that time. Satan loves death, the pain it causes, and the faith it assaults. The majority of violent crimes, robberies, rapes, etc. occur after the sun has fled the western sky. The Bible says it clearly. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. You remember the saying, it's always darkest before the dawn? Lions most often roar before the dawn between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. Richmond says, that leads to the first and primary reason that they roar. Number one, lions roar to create fear. Paralyzing, heart-stopping, soul-wrenching, immobilizing fear. When they attack their prey, most of which is pretty easily frightened away, they gain that much more of an advantage by roaring as they attack. Satan's greatest tool is fear. He'll put fear into you. Reason number two, a lion's roar is to gather their pride, their family. It's their way of saying, here I am. I'm here. Richmond makes the application, any speech delivered by Adolf Hitler, Fidel Castro, or Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, is the evil lion saying, here I am. Here I am. Any magazine stand selling Penthouse or Playboy or any other kind of magazine like that or, or any other woman exploiting trash is Satan calling out, here I am. Reason number three for Alliance Roar. They roar to herald their own territory. The roar is hostile and it says, you will pay dearly if you try to take this territory from me. An animal's territory it is, is what it is most likely to die for. And Satan, once he has claimed any territory, is savage about keeping it. Remember he had claimed uh, the Alca Indians in uh, South America? They belonged to him, supposedly. But Jim Elliot was killed trying to claim them for Jesus Christ. And he did, didn't he? Eventually. They came to Christ. Did God not protect Jim? Because he died for his faith. Yes and no. 
Richmond says, he offered Jim a crack at God's highest calling, and Jim took it. Then as his reward, God took Jim through the gates of splendor. And now, as we've seen in movies, that tribe knows Christ. So who had the ultimate victory? Reason number four, lions use their roar to intimidate their competitors. They run off other lions or leopards that, may, that might compete for the prey. That compares with Satan's convincing us that someone is beyond our help. They're too far gone. There's no way that you're ever going to lead that person to Christ. That's when he says that you'll be hurt if you get involved. And, we, and he wins sometimes, doesn't he? Is anyone beyond Jesus Christ's mercy and grace? Not that we know of. When we look at somebody, we need to know that they are a potential believer in Christ if the Holy Spirit comes into their lives. Again, Satan wants to intimidate us, cripple us with fear, and so he roars. But the enemy also uses another more subtle, because we can usually identify the loud roars, can't we? What about the subtleties? Because he uses another more subtle and insidious method of assault on us as individuals. Chinese writer and preacher Watchman Nee had a method referred to it, gave it a name, this method. He gave it the name gradualism. Gradualism. That sound familiar to you? Gradualism. Satan wants to wear you down by wearing you out. This is what Watchman Nee wrote. He says, Satan has, in fact, a plan against the saints of the Most High, which is to wear them out. What is meant by this phrase, wear out? It has in it the idea of reducing a little this minute and reducing a little further the next minute, reducing a little today, reducing a little tomorrow. Thus, wearing out is almost imperceptible. Nevertheless, it is a reducing the wearing down is scarcely an activity of which one is conscious, yet the end result is that there is nothing left. He will take away your prayer life little by little and cause you to trust God less and less and yourself more and more, a little at a time. He will make you feel somewhat cleverer than before. Step by step, you're misled to rely more on your own gift, and step by step, your heart is enticed away from the Lord. Now, were Satan to strike the children of God with great force at one time, they would know exactly how to resist the enemy, since they would immediately recognize his work. He uses the method of gradualism to wear down the people of God. How many of you ladies were in the retreat last weekend? Raise your hand. You saw and heard Beth Moore give a classic illustration of this. And for those of you that weren't there, all you guys, I want to share that with you. Beth Moore's daughter had a friend that was something of a prankster and told this story of how she and some college roommates thought they would play a joke on some neighbor friends that lived just down the street from them. Kind of a townhouse situation. They were very good friends, often at one another's houses. So they planned that every time they were in their friend's house, they were going to take a little something from the house and take it back home with them. Okay? 
sly and subtly as they knew how to take it. So they began with knickknacks. They'd come over, they'd visit, they'd pick up a knickknack, walk out the door, bring it back to their house. And then it went from knickknacks to small vases. And then it went from small vases to small framed things on coffee tables. Until it finally went to pictures on the walls. And she said the piece of the resistance was when she got to just drag a dining room chair out of the house and into their apartment, unnoticed. So then they had them all over for dinner. And they had the chair at the table. The knickknacks were all over the table. All the table decorations were there. All, all the pictures were hung on the wall. And so they had them sit down and waited them for them to go, whoa. And they said they watched as their eyes grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And she said, you know, I have something exactly like that. I have something like that and something like that and something like that. And then Beth Moore puts the icing on the cake and drives home the lesson. Do you know what the enemy is doing with some of us? It's just slyly, one thing at a time, going from the small, small stuff first so we won't really notice. And then he goes a little bigger and gets a little bigger. And then he's dragging a dining room chair out until we find ourselves sitting at his table. Gradualism. Satan wants to wear you down by wearing you out. That's how he attacks individuals. But... He also assaults the corporate body. The corporate body. He attacks the church as a whole. And the adversary has attacked the organized church and very successfully as a whole. He has traditionally used two methods to do this, attempting to destroy the body of Christ. The first one is through outward persecution, which we've already talked about. However, you know as well as I do that the persecution of the church has often led to the increased spread of the church. Right? As Tertullian, father, the early church father said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But there's another way that he attacks the corporate body, and that's through inward apostasy. Inward apostasy. He's made it a priority to destroy the church of God from within its own ranks, causing it ever to so subtly to depart from the true faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote. This is by far the most insidious and destructive approach. Because, friends, it's here. It's here within the body of Christ that we must be at a constant state of readiness on the alert, contending earnestly for the faith. As Paul departed from the elders of the church at Ephesus, he gave them this grave warning. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. 
But notice verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Again, it's this word of grace. He commends them to God and to the word of truth. Over the centuries, Satan has attempted to annihilate the church and turn it apostate through all kinds of philosophies, such as rationalism, empiricism, deism, higher criticism, commercialism, communism, Darwinism, liberalism, ecumenism, neo-orthodox, atheism, relativism, and most recently, he has infiltrated the church through postmodernism. Any more isms? There are plenty of them over the centuries. How familiar are you with these concepts? Do you realize that your thought process and my thought process, your belief system, my belief system, yours and your children's educational experience, your moral ideals, your values, literally your practical everyday lives are not only affected and influenced by each one of those things that I mentioned, but the decisions that you and I make on a daily basis are often dictated by those systems and we don't even realize it. We don't even realize it. Every single day, you and I are bombarded with these kinds of influences through the portals of the media you watch, the music you hear, the messages you receive via books, magazines, preachers, talk show hosts, and trust me, they affect the way that you and I think and the way that our church operates. They absolutely affect it. Someone wrote, Christian truth is not something to be taken for granted or valued lightly. When it is threatened by false teaching, we must vigorously fight for the truth. The answer to apostasy or the turning away from the faith is a return to the biblical basis of our faith and to the practice of it. Amen? Although the adversary wishes to destroy us, Christ the Good Shepherd has given his life for us. He has. And he also left us with his Holy Spirit and his revealed word. And by those tools, the church and you and I as individuals will prevail and endure. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's building of his church. So he's a deceitful and a destructive adversary, but he's also something else. He's something else which ought to give us a boatload of confidence as we wage this spiritual war. You know what he is? He's a destined adversary. A destined adversary. Look at Revelation chapter 20. Revelation 20. And follow along with me as I read. Verse 1, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. 
And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to, to gather them together for the war. And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever say that with me forever and ever he's a destined enemy that's great news isn't it but because he's a destined enemy he's coming unglued the further history progresses, the louder he roars and the closer his destiny draws. We need to understand this implicitly in order to take a firm stand and resist him. His ultimate destiny is the lake of fire. You know it and I know it and he knows it. But he wants to take as many people down with him as absolutely possible. The lake of fire, by the way, was never created for human beings. Only for the devil and his angels. You've heard me say that before. Matthew 26, 41 spells that out very clearly. So if people end up there, it's not because a loving God destined them for it. It's because they willingly choose it for themselves by rejecting their only means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ our Savior. They choose to believe the lies of the adversary, reject Christ out of hand, and thereby make the choice themselves to go where they were never meant to go. This passage I want to read to you, it's so important to hear. Ezekiel 18, verse 23 says, God says this, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God. Rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. Verse 31. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? You can put your name right there. Why will you die, for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. 
Make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. How do you do that? By coming to Christ by faith and receiving him as Lord and Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, a new heart, a new spirit. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. See, this adversary of ours, he's deceptive, he's destructive, but he's destined for judgment and he's receiving salvation and, and receiving salvation Christ offers as he wants to keep people from receiving that. He wants to keep us from understanding the offer of salvation, as many people as he can, until he goes down. His threats to those who are in Christ, however, are completely and utterly groundless. You know that, right? His threats to you, if you're in Christ, are groundless. Why? Because nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, nothing. No one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, Jesus said in John chapter 10. Satan's going to attempt to paralyze believers by roaring so loud that it shakes us to the absolute core. He'll throw our past in our faces and say that there's no way that we can be accepted by God. He'll turn our attention away from the promises of Scripture about our guaranteed inheritance. But every time he points us to our past, folks, you know what you need to do? You need to remind him of his future because he's destined and beyond reminding him of his future, you need to remind yourself of yours. That's where we forget. That's what we forget. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says this, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of of sins. That's what this week is all about. That's why Jesus entered into the city one last time to present himself as their Savior and Messiah. They rejected him, put him on a cross, shedding the blood that would pay the price for your sin and mine. And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. And God's stamp of approval on his sacrifice was given. And that's how you and I can gain entrance into eternal life because Christ paved the way. Read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9 this week. Talk about our guaranteed inheritance if you're in Christ that will not fade away and no one can take it from you. Brethren, A.W. Tozer wrote, we have been declared not guilty by the highest court in all the universe. It's good to know that on the basis of grace as taught in the word of God, when God forgives a man, he trusts him as though he had never sinned. The Bible does not teach that if a man falls down, he can never rise again. The fact that he falls is not the most important thing, but rather that he is forgiven and he allows God to lift him up. Satan is a doomed and destined adversary. He is completely overcome by the lordship of Jesus Christ. So finally, we must see that our, our adversary for who he really is. He's not just a destined adversary. He's a defeated adversary. A defeated adversary. The demons knew it, know it. Satan himself knows it. 
and we ought to know it. Because when the odds seem so overwhelming we fear our, and we fear our own defeat, we need to have our eyes open to this truth that you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. I think of that context, that story in the Old Testament. And sometimes wish, you know, don't you wish that you could do this? 2 Kings chapter 6 and verses 6 and 6 through 16 and 17. 2 Kings chapter 6. This is the situation here where they're surrounded. Elisha and Elijah are surrounded, uh, the Israel surrounded by an enemy. And uh, 2 Kings 6 and verse 16. Verse 15, now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was circling the city, and his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now this is what I wish we could do. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. I would pray that for you right now and for me. O Lord, open their eyes so that they may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw and behold, the mountain, mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around. Elisha. He could see the angelic hosts that were going to wage the battle, which they indeed won. Second Chronicles 32, verses 7 and 8. Similar passage says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. Greater is he who is in you than he was in the world. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people relied on the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. See, we don't have to run from a defeated enemy, do we? In fact, the Bible doesn't tell us to. It says, stand your ground and resist, and he will flee. And we can do it firm in our faith if we submit ourselves to God first and resist the devil he is the one who will run. The family driving on a Sunday afternoon, the windows were all rolled down in the vehicle. This has probably happened to you before. A daughter was sitting in the back seat, allergic to bee stings, cries, Daddy, Daddy, a bumblebee's in the car. So the father reaches out his big hand and he grabs and catches the bee. Buzzing around in his hand, he holds on to it until finally it stings him. Then he lets it go. And it buzzes around the car again and the daughter screams, Daddy, Daddy, the bee is still there. And the father says, don't worry. I took the best it had and he opened his hand and showed his daughter the stinger. That's what Christ did for you and me. That's exactly what Christ did for you and me. 
gives new meaning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, doesn't it? When you think about it that way. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, because you know this, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Amen? We can resist our enemy in the power and in the name of Jesus Christ who won the victory for us at the cross and through the resurrection. He took the sting. Our adversary may prowl around like a roaring lion waiting and seeking someone to devour, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus our Lord, walks about seeking someone to deliver. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's a defeated, Satan is a defeated enemy. He is overcome by the deliverance of Christ. Let me close with this. I thought this was a very interesting picture. It's in Christianity Today from February. Author and musician Carolyn Arends, she has great articles in Christianity Today. And she writes this article entitled, Satan's a Goner. A lesson from a headless snake. She talks about when she was a little girl, how missionaries would visit her church and get, talk about, you know, give stories about their encounters on the field. She said, "There's one visit I'll never, uh, I've never forgotten. The missionaries were a married couple stationed in what appeared to be a, pra- a particularly steamy jungle. One day they told us an enormous snake, much longer than a man." slithered its way right through their front door and into the kitchen of their simple home. I guess we don't have to worry about that in Maine, do we? (laughs) Terrified, they ran outside and searched frantically for a local who might know what to do. And a machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marching into their house and decapitating the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the reptile had been defeated. But there was a catch. He warned it was going to take a while for the snake to realize that it was dead. A snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable time for it to stop moving even after decapitation. For the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while that snake thrashed about, smashing furniture and flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until his body finally understood that it no longer had a head. Sweating in the heat, they had felt frustrated and a little sickened, but also grateful that the snake's rampage wouldn't last forever. And at some point in their waiting, they told us, they had a mutual epiphany. Satan is a lot like that big old snake, they said. He's already been defeated. He just doesn't know it yet. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage. But never forget 
that he's a goner. Carolyn Renz writes, I have come to believe it is an accurate picture of the universe. We're in a thrashing time. A season characterized by our pervasive capacity to do violence to each other and ourselves. The temptation is to despair. We have to remember, though, that it won't last forever. Jesus has already crushed the serpent's head. To be certain, there is an immeasurable amount of evil in our world, but compared with God's love and power, all the evil in the universe doesn't cover the head of a pin. Love wins. Satan doesn't stand a chance. Thus, though we wrestle with brokenness that plagues the world and ourselves, we do so not with grim resignation, but with hopeful defiance. We face both our addictions and afflictions, not with a faint white-knuckled hope that someday we will be healed, but rather with an assurance that we are living slowly but surely into the healing already obtained at the cross. You get that? There is still a waiting. In some cases, the healing may not come in fullness until we're face to face with our victor, but come it will, guaranteed. Guaranteed. One of the mysteries of living in God's time rather than our own is that although at the end of the story it's all been determined, somehow he's still using us to write the story. Because Jesus lives in us through his spirit, we're called not just to anticipate the overcoming, but also to be part of bringing it to fruition. And so... We're called. We're called to fight. Condition red. You're called to fight poverty. We're called to fight oppression. We're called to fight greed and malice in the world and in our own spirits. We're invited to live in light of the reality that greater by far is the living God who is in you and me than the dead snake thrashing around who is in the world. Amen? So go, as my mentor used to say, and give him Jesus. Go and give him Jesus. Rejoice greatly, wrote Zechariah, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal. Of a donkey. He came once and fulfilled all kinds of scriptures. He's coming again and we will reign victorious. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, God in heaven, thank you so much for the promise, the promise of victory. And it is by our faith that we overcome the world. You've said that in your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the remembrance of what he went through this week, although it was painful and an atrocity. And we ache in our spirits for what he went through. We bow in humility and humble acceptance that without that gift, we would surely perish. Thank you for the resurrection, which we look forward to next Sunday. May our celebration be sweet and glorious and honorable to you. And between now and then, may we walk 
in the triumph that Christ won for us. For Jesus' sake and in his name, I pray. Amen.